Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Jesus goes on and says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus is heading into the next section of his Sermon on the Mount, where he's going to be showing his hearers that God's law goes way deeper than just an outward appearance of keeping it. He's going to be doing so by saying, you have heard that it was said, and he's going to be quoting Old Testament law. He's going to say, you have heard that it was said, and then he's going to add, but then I say. And so we're going to deal real quickly with, you know, the Bible says that we're not to add to the scriptures. Then what right does Jesus have to add to the scriptures? He is the word. He, he, he not only wrote it, it's him. He is the word. You know that in John chapter one, verse one, the scripture says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Uh, and then John chapter 17, verse 17, Jesus is praying in the garden and he says, Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And then, of course, we know John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So scripturally, Jesus has every right to say, but I say. It's dangerous for us as preachers to say, God's word says, but I say. Do you understand? Don't ever go there. Stick with what the word says and leave it at that. Jesus, though, is going to be taking the law that they knew and had been taught to them by the Pharisees for years, and he's going to be expanding it in a way and in a depth that they needed. And we'll see in a little bit why. But also, Jesus in these verses, as we just saw, is making very clear that in clarifying the law, he's not changing it at all or doing away with it. Look at verses 17 and following again. He says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them. This is important. You're going to see this a little later on. But to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. You've heard me talk about how recently in Christendom right now, there's a move to, like I said, unhitch the church, the new, the church from the Old Testament. What did Jesus say here? The, talking about the law and the law of Moses. He says, it's none of that's going to pass away until it's all been fulfilled. And heaven and earth are going to pass away before it passes away. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So we love to quote that we're un not under law, but under grace, which is true. And we're going to talk about this in a little bit tonight. But don't think for a second that that means we can freely break God's law and suffer no consequences. We're going to talk in detail and show you from Scripture the depth of the conundrum, if you will, about the fact that the law is still in force, yet at the same time we're not under the law if we're in Christ. It's a hard thing. Unfortunately, there are people, though, that are out there and have been all along who teach that if you're saved and you're forgiven, you're already so forgiven and so saved that you can just do whatever you want and it makes no difference. Well, 
listen to what the scripture has to say about that. Go to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, look at verses 13 through 15. If you decide to live like that, there, you won't lose your salvation, but there will be consequences. Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 13, Paul says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. We've been called to freedom because we've been set free from sin because of Jesus, correct? The, 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 the righteous requirements of the law, like we're going to see in Romans 8 just a little bit, have been met in us who are in Christ. We've been set free from the law. We're no longer being judged by whether or not we keep the law. We're under God's grace, and that's a wonderful thing. But that doesn't mean that we then ignore the law. As you're going to see in just a little bit, those of us who are truly in Christ will want to obey the law, not because if we don't, we're in trouble, but because we're in Christ, who not only fulfilled it, continues to fulfill it, if you will, in and through us. And that's that whole wrestling match. Let me show you a couple other passages that might help you understand what I'm talking about. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, look at verse 16. In 1 Peter 2, verse 16, the scripture says, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So again, it talks about how we're free. We've been set free from the judgment of the law, yet we're not to use our freedom as a cover-up for sin. One more passage. Go to the book of Jude and look at verses 3 and 4. Jude, verses 3 and 4. Jude says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Again, what had happened was in the early church, there was this Gnosticism that started to be taught. And the basics of Gnosticism is this, simply this. The Gnostics believed that there was a difference between the flesh and the spirit. And they said that since we've been born again in the spirit and our spirits have been made alive, even though our bodies are still dead because of sin and still under the curse, because there's a separation between the spirit and the flesh, if you're truly saved, you can do whatever you want in the flesh because you're, you're a new person in the spirit. Whatever your body does doesn't make a difference. And they taught that you could sexually sin and do all this stuff because you're so free in Christ. That's why many of the passages we've looked at, Paul had to keep dealing with. And Jude here and saying, look, guys, don't listen to these teachers that have taken the truth of the gospel and turned it into a license to sin. Now, there's a wonderful preacher out there named Les Feldick. And if you've ever listened to some of his teaching, it's excellent. And he makes a statement, and I think it's an awesome statement. He said, if you ever share the gospel with somebody and they don't come up with this question, so you're saying that I'm so forgiven by Jesus that I can just sin and I will still go to heaven? If they don't ask that question, Les says, you haven't shared the gospel. That is the gospel. 
We are saved not by anything we do, but by the grace of God. The neat thing, though, is if you study the Scriptures in 1 John chapter 3 and 1 John chapter 5, the Scripture says those of us who have been born of God will not continue the practice of sinning because of the Spirit within us. Either He's going to conform us into the image of Son, or if we rebel against that, even though we've been already forgiven and guaranteed eternity in heaven, He may take you home early. The Bible does talk about the fact that there is such a thing as sin unto death for believers. So as we go into where we're going to go tonight, as Jesus is going to be expanding the law, I need to just first remember, uh, remind you that Jesus said, don't think that I'm abolishing the law. I'm not getting rid of it. But I've come to fulfill it, he says. And that's very, very important. Go with me to Romans chapter 8. And look at verses 1 through 4, and then we'll jump to verse 9. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Let me say that to you again. I want you to hear that. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Jump down to verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Paul says there's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. Because even though we weren't able to keep the law, the righteous requirements of the law have been met by who? Jesus. He perfectly met the righteous requirements of the law. And I'm going to show you some scriptures on that in just a second. And because he perfect, perfectly met the righteous requirements of the law, and we have now been placed in him, the righteous requirements of the law are now ours. We are considered righteous, but simply because of Jesus. Now, it's interesting. Look at verse 3 again. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Anybody want to help me out with that? What does that mean? What could the law not do that God did because our flesh was weak. What, did, what, what could the law not do? Well, close. It could not make us righteous. It could not make us righteous. Why? Anybody want to know why? Go ahead. You got it. Paul has actually laid this all out in the previous chapter. He actually says an interesting thing happened. Uh, I didn't even know what coveting was, Paul said, until the law said, don't covet. And then something inside of me in my flesh rose up and all of a sudden I, I coveted. Have you ever been walking down the sidewalk and you hadn't even thought about stepping on someone's lawn because you're on the sidewalk? Why walk on the lawn? But if they got all these signs that say, keep off my grass, there's something in us that goes, oh, yeah, look what I just did. There's something in us that's that way. And actually, in 1 Corinthians 15, 56, the, Paul says the power of sin is the law. In other words, what fuels sin is the law. 
Because of the weakness of our flesh, the law would never make anybody righteous because what the law does is actually fire up the sin in us. There's an interesting passage in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, where it actually says that the law was added so that the trespass or sin would increase. If you were to ask most people today, does God want lost people to sin less or sin more? They would say, well, sin less. No, the Bible says he wants lost people to sin more. The law was added so that they would sin more. Anybody want to know why? What's that? So they would realize it. Don't we have a world right now that thinks they're okay with God? Yet the Bible says, and you're going to see this later on in our study, that the law demands perfection. By the way, I'll make a commercial. I'm going to um, be preaching here at this church the next two Sundays, 16th and 23rd. And the message I'm going to be bringing to you this Sunday is entitled, We Don't Need a Second Chance. We Need a Savior. See, a lot of people see salvation as a second chance. It's not a second chance. And I'm going to lay this out from Scripture all the way through history and the history of man, that every time you're given a second chance, you're going to blow that one too. If I gave you 100,000 second chances, you'd blow them all as well because of sin in our flesh. We don't need a second chance. We need a Savior. And a lot of people see salvation as a second chance. No, if you think it's a second chance for you to live, for, live right, you don't understand salvation. You don't understand the gospel. You don't need a second chance. You need a Savior. Now, to keep me from preaching Sunday's message, I'm going to just stop right there and leave that. But the, what happens is the law said, thou shalt not, if you will, and then everything in our flesh now wants to. Now, if the Bible teaches that the law demands perfection, it doesn't matter how many times you try to do better. If you've blown it once, are you in trouble? You're in trouble. That's why you don't need a second chance. You, if you blow once, you don't need a second chance. You need a Savior. Now, here's the question. Did Jesus keep the law perfectly while he was on the earth? The answer is yes. But can you give me any scripture that proves it? Because if someone say, well, how do you know Jesus never sinned? Because there's lots of people out there that say that he was sleeping with, you know, out of a relationship out of marriage with Mary Magdalene and all this stuff. Other people were teaching that he was homosexual and different things. Scripturally, you can say to everybody, no, Jesus never sinned. Do you have any scripture to back it up? I'm sorry? <laughs> the whole of scripture does. But I'm saying, can you, can we, do you have the, you, something you can show somebody? Let me give you a few. Let me just give you a few real quick. Go to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, look at verse 15. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but, the one, who in every, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, there it is, yet without sin. Go to 1 Peter Chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, and just look at verse 22. 1 Peter 2, verse 22. It can't be any more clear than this. He, Jesus, committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Go to John chapter 8, verse 46. John chapter 8, verse 46, Jesus makes this bold statement. He said, which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? By the way, when they put him to trial in that sham of a trial that, on, on the night that he was to be put to death, could they find any reason to put him to death? 
any law that he had broken. All they could do was pull some people in that lied and said he said he was going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Of course, he was talking about his body. He wasn't talking about the temple. They couldn't find any sin. Even Pilate said, I find no fault with this guy. And then Jesus makes a very interesting statement in John chapter 14, verse 30. Look at what Jesus says right before he's going to the cross on that last night in the upper room. In John chapter 14, look at verse 30. Jesus says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. That's pretty cool. Jesus himself taught that if you hadn't been given righteousness by the Father and passed from death to life and become a child of God through faith. You know, the Bible says he came to his own, but his own didn't receive him. But whoever did receive him gave the right to become children of God. Before you've been given righteous, put in Christ and become a child of God, whose child are you? Satan's. The Bible's really, really clear. Jesus himself said that. Your father is the devil. He had a claim on you and he had a claim on me. And if it were up to me, he'd still have a claim on me. Because there's nothing I can do to remove that. But guess what? If you're in Christ, there's no longer any condemnation. And Satan has no claim on you. He has no claim on you. Oh, do you still sin? I hope you say yes. Not because I want you to sin, but because the Bible is very, very clear that um, if we say we still don't have, if we don't, if we say we don't have sin, First John chapter one says we lie and the truth's not in us. And he then goes on in chapter two, and John says, "My dear children, I write to you that you may not sin. But if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We still struggle in this flesh, but thank God, I've been set free from the law. I now listen, am to live and will live as I walk in the Spirit." I will live according to the righteous requirements of the law as I let Jesus live through me. My meaning of the righteous requirements of the law is only because I'm in Christ and he's living his life. A lot of people don't realize this. The law is still in force and it's still accomplishing its purpose, but not for us anymore. Not for us anymore. Let me show you a couple of passages that show you what, show you what I'm talking about. Go to Romans chapter 3. This is why there are those who take this biblical truth and twist it into you can do whatever you want. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, we're, we're going to get to some of that tonight. Not a lot of it, unfortunately, but the, right now the Jewish people aren't. Trying to, they're back in the nation, in the land, but they're not worshiping God. Or, but they will be at some point because the Antichrist is going to step into the temple. They're going to go back to the sacrificial system at some point. Look at Romans chapter three. Look at verses nineteen and twenty. It says now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are who under the law. Are you and I under the law anymore? No, the law is even though it's still in force and it's accomplishing its purpose, it's not for us. Yet a lot of us still struggle with that. A lot of us still think 
that we have to be righteous and be good. And, and God says, I'm going to work on that. Let me take care of that. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 says, So I say, walk in the Spirit, and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. We're to be focusing on a relationship with Jesus and all those righteous requirements that have already been met in us because we're in Christ. He'll actually manifest them in our daily walk as we stop trying to do better and we just walk in the Spirit. And as we walk in the Spirit and trust in Him, He actually does live out the law of the righteous requirements in us. But thank God we've been set free from it because the law speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. What's the purpose of the law? It's only for the lost. And what's the purpose of the law for the lost? To reveal their sin. It's like an MRI machine. If you got cancer but you don't know it, the MRI reveals the cancer. Did the MRI give you cancer? No, the MRI just revealed the cancer that was already there. And aren't you glad the MRI revealed the cancer? Because now you know it's there and you can deal with it. In the same way, the world is all under sin. That's why the Bible says when Adam and Eve were in the garden, they broke a command of God not to eat from that certain tree. But between Adam and Eve and the time of Moses, many, many years later, the Bible says the soul that sins, it shall die. And all those people that live between Adam and Eve to Moses, when the law of Moses came, they all died. Did they, what commands did they break? There were no commands that they broke that we can tell, but there was still sin. The law came to reveal the sin. Go to an interesting passage, 1 Timothy chapter 1, look at verses 8 through 11. I had never really seen this before. I mean, I've read it and I've taught on Timothy, but this, these verses jumped off the page at me as I was doing this study. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. Paul says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly, the sinners. And then he goes on and describes them, the unholy, the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. Look close again at what he says there in verse 8, or verse 9. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for who? For the righteous or for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient. So, yes, you are not under law, but you're under grace. Thank God we're not under law. Because how'd y'all do today? Well, we don't want to waste the rest of the night trying to fill up. You know what I'm saying? We could all say, blew it here, blew it here, blew it there. Thank God we're not under law. Don't hear, and I can just do whatever I want. That's not what the Bible teaches. Yet the law is still in force. And God's wanting to use it for his purpose of revealing to the world their lostness. Now, this purpose of the law to reveal sin is what Jesus is going to be doing and getting at in the following verses in our study here in the Sermon on the Mount. He wants his hearers who have been taught by the Pharisees to keep the law in order to be righteous and have been fooled into thinking that their leaders could keep the law he wants them to understand that neither they nor their leaders could keep the perfect demands of the law. That's why, go back to Matthew chapter 5. He says these two things here in chapter 5. One's verse 20 and the other one's in verse 48. Look what he says in verse 20. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
that interesting? Keep in mind the audience that he's speaking to at this time. The Jews that were there, how did they view the Pharisees? Way up here, right? I mean, these guys tied on their mint and their cumin, and they made sure that they kept every little detail. And not only did they keep every little detail, they had added all these extra laws. And like on the Sabbath, you're not allowed to do any work on the Sabbath. So they would write all these extra laws on what it was to work or not work and how many steps you could take and all this stuff. And the Pharisees would never eat unless they had had a proper symbolic washing of their hands. And the, the, the regular folks would look at the Pharisees and say, I'll never live like, I can't be that righteous. They're way closer to God. And then Jesus has the boldness to say, unless your righteousness surpasses the Pharisees, you'll never get into heaven. What would be the automatic reaction of everybody that was listening? I give up. And that's what he's looking for from us. I give up. Good. You don't need a second chance. You need a savior. Oh, by the way, who does the Bible say is going to live out this new life that we've been given? Is it us? It's Christ. Daily, we have to remind ourselves to give up trying to get better as a Christian. Daily, we have to lay our flesh on the altar and renew our minds, what the Bible says in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Daily, we have to be reminded of this truth that if I am going to manifest this new life that's within me, it's not because I tried harder or I did good. It's because I rested in Jesus and he'll walk it. And I, I, I do what he says, trusting that he's going to make it work. And look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. You, therefore, must be what? Perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. By the way, perfect means Never, ever blew it, ever. Anybody in that group? How are we going to get there? Um, Jesus, um, according to your standard, no one's getting into heaven then. You're going to be all on your own. Oh, actually, you can be declared righteous. And I've laid it all out and been showing it to you from the garden that this seed of the woman, this one that's going to come and defeat Satan, the sacrificial system has all been pointing to him. This one that's going to come that be God and man, and he's going to live a sinless life, and he's going to be crucified in your place, and he's going to rise from the dead. And if you put your faith in him, you will be declared righteous, and you will be considered perfect. But you have to stop doing it or trying to think you can get there yourself. Let me show you two passages real quickly in Galatians. Go to Galatians chapter 3. You see, Paul wrote the book of Galatians because there was a group of folks that he had been privileged to be used by God to have them come to faith in Christ. But then teachers came in afterwards who started teaching that, yes, you're saved through faith in Christ, but you still got to do certain things to be righteous before God. And by the way, that stuff's still going on today. You've got to be baptized and speak in tongues or else you're not really saved. You've got to do these certain things. You have to be baptized, you know, immediately at that point, or you have to do it in the name of Jesus instead of the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And there's actually a movement in Merritt Island and in other parts of the globe as well where there are these people that are trying to take Christians back to the law and back under the law and the dietary restrictions and all these kinds of things. And many a Christian are being duped by this. And Paul was dealing with a group of Gentiles who had come to faith in Christ, and these Judaizers, if you will, had come into the church and said, yes, you're saved through faith in Christ, but you still have to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses. Listen to what he says in Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. 
For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. That's an Old Testament quote. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Jump over to chapter 5. Look at verses 1, 2, and 3. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not subject or submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. If you want to become righteous by something you do, you're really saying, I'm going to become righteous by observing the law. The Bible says, good luck with that because you have to do it perfectly or else you'll never be righteous. Do you really want to go there? Do you want to think that you're righteous by anything you do? And yet many of us have still been duped by the enemy into thinking, yeah, I know Christ forgive you, but you still, he, he won't be pleased with you unless you do these things. Jesus is saying no. For us, he's saying to us, no. But the hearers that he's speaking to are ones that have been taught that they are righteous by keeping the law. And the more you keep the law, the more righteous you are. Of course, you'll never be as righteous as us Pharisees and teachers of the law and the scribes. But if you're really good at keeping the law, and we'll tell you how to keep the law, then you'll be righteous before God. And Jesus is coming now to blow that all up. Go to chapter 5 again. Look at verses 21 through 26. Like I said, he's going to start taking pieces of the law and expanding them. He said, you have heard, verse 21 of Matthew 5, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift, therefore, before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, Jesus goes into detail in the rest of this whole chapter to point out that when God's law gave a command, the command was trying to reveal the heart of man, where the real problem is. You see, they had been taught to look at the outward action, because that's what the Pharisees were really good at. By the way, were the Pharisees pretty good at outwardly living righteous? How were they, according to Scripture, inwardly? Yeah, pretty, pretty rotten, whitewashed tombs, as we're going to see in just a little bit. We know from 1 Samuel that God doesn't look at the outward appearance like man does. God looks at the heart. Go with me real quick to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, look at verses 43 through 45. As Jesus is now going to be taking the law and expanding it to help them see what really, it's really saying, 
He's trying to get to their hearts. In Luke chapter 6, verse 43, the scripture says, For no tr good tree bears bad fruit, nor, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth, the, the mouth speaks. So again, Jesus is saying it's, it's your heart where everything comes from. And it actually becomes a lot more clear what he's saying here in Mark's account. Go to Mark chapter 7. In Mark chapter 7, look at verses 14 through 23. And Jesus called the people to him again, and he said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? I love this. Thus he declared all foods clean. That's why when Peter, by the way, in Acts chapter 10, had the vision of the sheet come down, and God says, don't call unclean what I've called clean, that wasn't the first time Peter had heard God call all foods clean. Jesus wasn't teaching him something new at that time. He was reminding him of something that he had already heard Jesus say. He had already said, it isn't what goes into you that makes you unclean. By the way, it's, it, I, for years I've made this joke. For those of you that know me or have ever offered me some coffee, for years I've always said, when someone says, hey, Jimmy, would you like some coffee? I always say, no thanks, I want to go to heaven. And everybody goes, oh, you, you, you don't go to heaven by drinking coffee? And I go, that's the whole point of the joke. You don't, I just don't like coffee, but it, drinking coffee ain't going to make you not go to heaven. If you think something that goes into you is going to make you unrighteous, you totally miss the whole point. And listen to what Jesus goes on and says. Look at verse 20. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So the problem with the world is not their environment. Haven't we been taught that the reason why these kids in the, in the ghettos are stealing and acting the way they do is because they're in a bad environment? If they were just in a better environment, they would be better kids. No, it's not what's coming from the outside that makes us bad. Actually, James chapter 1, verse 13 says, If any of you is tempted, don't say, well, I'm being tempted by God, because God doesn't tempt anyone, nor, does, nor is he tempted. But each one of us is tempted when our own evil desire takes root. That sin problem is in each person. It's in every one of us, and it's in our heart. John, uh, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful beyond all things and beyond cure. You can't cure the bad heart. You need a new one. You don't need a second chance. You need a savior. And I'm fighting preaching that sermon tonight. Can't wait till Sunday. But Jesus is showing it's the heart. But they had been taught all along to work on the outward appearance of keeping the law. So Jesus now comes and says, I know the law says that you shall not murder, but I say, if you're angry with your brother, you're opening yourself up to judgment. 
If you insult your brother, you'll be opening yourself to having man deal with you in judgment, the counsel. If you declare someone a fool, you are opening up yourself to judgment and the judgment being hell. It's interesting. He says three things. He says, you've been told you shall not murder. And a lot of you think you're okay because you hadn't killed anybody. But I want you to see something deeper here. I want to get to the heart. God's command is dealing with the heart. But I say to you, if you are angry with your brother, you're opening yourself up to judgment. If you insult your brother, you're going to be opening yourself to having man deal with you in judgment. And if you declare someone a fool, you're opening yourself up to your judgment being hell. Now, a study of what the scripture has to say about anger will help us understand these three things. So that's what we're going to do in the time we have left tonight. Folks, listen, being angry about something in and of itself is not a sin. Because if being angry at all were a sin, God can't be God because God does get angry. Correct? But let me tell you something about God. He is slow to anger. That's very important that we understand that. Go to Numbers chapter 14 real quick and look at verse 18. Numbers chapter 14 and look at verse 18. It says, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. So here, God describes himself, and he's, he's slow to anger, full of steadfast love. He's never going to clear the guilty. But if God's slow to anger... We're supposed to be slow to anger if we have Christ living in, living through us, not only in, but through us. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to kind of lay some foundation here because you're going to find the scriptures say three different things about anger. And at first they're going to seem to contradict themselves, but hopefully by the end of tonight you'll be able to see how they all go together and hopefully it'll make a ton of sense in the context of where we're going here. In Ephesians chapter 4, look at verses 26 and 27. The scripture says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. That's very important. Let me say that to you again. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So here the Bible says you can be angry. But if you're angry, don't sin. And it then goes on and says, oh, and by the way, don't hold on to your anger for more than 24 hours at the most. You cannot let the sun go down on your anger. Yeah, if you're going to be angry, um, don't sin when you're angry. Oh, and by the way, you can't be angry about something for more than a day at the most. By the way, let me just say something to you. I'm tired of Christians making the joke about so-and-so sleeping on the couch tonight. You ever heard that? You know, they always make, oh, you made your wife mad. You're sleeping on the couch tonight. For Christians, that shouldn't be the case. Because that means someone let the sun go down on their anger. And the Bible says don't do that. It shouldn't even be a joke. Because once you do let the sun go down on your anger and you hang on to it longer than you should, what happens? Scripture tells us. You've given devil foothold. That's very important. Is it a sin to be angry? No. But... 
you better not be angry for very long. And I'm going to show you a scripture really why in just a second. And hopefully you're slow to even get angry. Which, by the way, do you realize if we're not allowed to let the sun go down on our anger and we're supposed to be slow to anger, that even leaves less than 24 hours a day for us to be angry, doesn't it? And on top of that, when we do hold on to our anger, we give Satan a foothold. So let's take a look at some other scriptures that talk about it and help us put this all together. Go to James chapter 1. Look at verses 19 and 20. James says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to what? Slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The anger of man will never produce the righteousness of God. Go, to, go ahead. Well, hang on for a second, and I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you. If, how do you get angry and don't sin? Stick with me. And if it hasn't been answered by the end of this, then we'll come back to it. But I believe it will be. Go to Proverbs chapter 14, verse 29. I think the proverb puts it really, really well. Proverbs 14, verse 29. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly, creates havoc, foolishness. I'm going to tell you something I've told my daughters. Nicole's 25 and Elise is 22, and they hope to be married one day. I've told each of them, when you're dating somebody, if you find out that he has a temper, I want you to end the relationship right there and then. Don't even play with it. You don't even want to be married to someone that's got a temper. The Bible's very, very clear about that. And I know as a pastor, having dealt with too many ladies that have married men who say, well, I've just got a short fuse. I fly off the handle. That's just who I am. Well, guess what? The Bible says that's sin. And you can't say, hey, hey I'm just a drinker. I'm just an adulterer. Yeah, I like to look at porn. Ain't no big deal. That's what we say when we say, well, I've just got a short fuse. Well, the Bible says that's sin. We need to be slow to anger. And actually, we're to be angry and never sin. Well, how do you be angry and don't sin? How do you be slow to anger? How does this all come together? Well, we shouldn't also deal with our anger in our own wisdom. And another reason we shouldn't hold on to it is because when we do, we make ourselves a judge over the person we're angry with or the situation that we're angry about. By the way, that's why the scripture said, if you call someone a fool, you will be opening yourself to the judgment of hell. But doesn't the Bible say in Proverbs, sorry, in Psalms 24 verse 1, oh, sorry, not, that's not 24 verse 1, uh, I think it's 14 verse 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Okay, let me say this to you again. The scripture does say the fool has said in his heart, there's no God. Who called him a fool? I heard you. God did. Who's the only one that really knows everybody's heart? Only God. So God can say that the fool has said in his heart, there's no God. Jesus himself, in telling the story about the rich man who saved up all these barns and then died, barns full of stuff and died, he says, you fool. Who is the only one allowed to say that? God, because he's the only one that is righteous enough to make the judgment. You and I aren't. 
and we think we're making righteous decisions and we're righteous in our anger. No, actually, your righteousness, or sorry, your anger will never produce God's righteousness, the scripture says. So how do we, in our anger, not sin, and at the same time be slow to anger? Well, let me share with me the two more passages of scripture that will hopefully put it all together. This is why the scriptures teaches us to get rid of our anger. Go to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, look at verses 5 through 10. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. What's the first thing we're to put away? Anger. Did you catch that? Didn't the Bible say I could be angry? Yeah, but then it went and said, and make sure you don't sin if you're angry. And um, don't hold in your anger for a day. Actually, the Bible says we're to be slow to anger. And now the scripture says that we're to put it away. We're to put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Don't lie to anyone. And seeing you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Jump over to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Look at what 1 Timothy chapter 2 says in verse 8. First Timothy 2 verse 8. Paul says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. So hang on for a second, folks. We've seen the scripture say, be angry, but don't sin. We've seen the scripture say, but you better be slow to anger. And we've seen the scripture also say, get rid of your anger. How do you put it all together? Here's how you put it all together. You humble yourself and acknowledge that you're not God. And you can't make righteous assessments of situations that don't go the way you think they ought to go. And so when you're tempted to be angry, you actually slow down on your anger and you pray about it. And as you pray about it, who do you hand your anger over to? God, who's the only one can make the right assessment. Oh, and is the only one, the scripture says, who's going to deal with that stuff that needs to be dealt with. Doesn't Romans chapter 12 tell us that we're not to seek revenge or retaliation? And if we do make a judgment, we're to do it in love. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 says, if you see your brother in a fault, you who are spiritual, restore them gently. If we're to make any judgments at all, we're to be making judgments and responding to them with love and help. We're never to respond in anger, ever. Oh, don't miss this. You think you're okay because you haven't killed anybody? If you've been angry and you've responded in anger, it's the same heart problem. Well, I've never killed anybody, but I've wanted to. You definitely can. By the way, this is why Jesus goes on to say that if we have any lingering issues with anyone, we need to stop thinking everything's okay between us and God. Leave your gift at the altar, like he said. 
and go make it right with that person. Go reconcile. A true kingdom person is one who's so trusting God's love and provision for them that even if others wrong us, we seek reconciliation instead of retaliation. Will your anger ever take you to reconciliation or will it take you to retaliation? It's going to take you to retaliation. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. You offended me, I'm going to offend you back. Listen to a couple of scriptures. I just feel like God wants me to go here, so just let me just say what I think he wants me to say. Some of you might have even been wronged by family members, friends, business partners, people you think that cheated you out of money, an inheritance that maybe you thought you should have gotten more of or some in at all. One of the biggest issues that is in the church today is people who are angry with others because of how they have felt like they've been taking advantage of monetarily and financially. I'm going to share with you some scriptures real quick. In Hebrews chapter 13, I'm going to quote it to you, verses 5 and 6. Listen to the context. Keep yourselves free. Keep your lives free from the love of money. For God has said, never will I leave you, nor will I forsake you. Therefore, I will say, what can man do to me? Do you hear the context of all that? Don't worry about money because God's promised that he will take care of you and he'll never leave you. Therefore, what can man do to you? But many a Christian today is still mad at a brother or sister that didn't share the inheritance or a business partner that cheated them. And it's happening all the time, and they think they're worshiping when they come to church. But they're not, because there's a heart issue there that's hindering their fellowship with the Father. It doesn't mean they lost their salvation. Someone has put it wisely one time that um, bitterness is the poison you drink hoping the other person will die. It's eating at you. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let me show you something here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Here's something that the church today doesn't like at all. Paul's dealing with the fact that there were Christians in the church who were suing each other. And he, he says, good grief. <laughs> Why are you taking these lawsuits amongst brothers and sisters in Christ to the courts in front of the lost world? That's stupid. Don't you have people in your church that are able to make, decide disputes? Don't you realize you're going to be judging angels one day and you guys can't handle this stuff amongst you in the church? But then he goes on in verse 7. Look what he says in verses 7 and 8. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Listen to what he said. He said, so what if you lose? Well, if, if I don't deal with this, they're going to go on and keep doing that to other people. Oh, so you're God. And you know everybody's heart. And you know everybody's motives. And you know what everybody's going to do. If I don't do something, something won't get done. You see what's happened? We've put ourselves in the place of God. You know what? The Bible says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I'll repay. And at the same time, we shouldn't also have this attitude that says, okay, God, I'll wait until you get them. Because that's not the heart of God toward you, is it? 
Is God waiting for the day? Did God wait until the day in which he could send you to hell? Or did he go out of his way to bring you to him? When you were his enemy, it says in Romans chapter 5, when you were powerless, when you were a sinner, Christ died for you. And he sought to reconcile you to him, even when you weren't trying to reconcile with him. The scripture says in Romans 12, as far as it lives with you, live at peace with everyone. Even if that means they lo you lose the deal. I actually have permission to share this story. I have a buddy of mine named Chris. Not that Chris, even though he's a buddy too, but another Chris. Who just recently had a boat that needed some repair work on his outboard motor. And it's a nice motor. And he was recommended to this guy who's really good at fixing motors, and he'll just do it in his, his yard at his house and fix it up. And so he took his boat over there, and the guy tore his motor apart and never got back with him. So Chris called him and said, hey, you know, where's my motor? No answer. Called him again. Where's it? Now a month goes by. Can't find this guy. So he goes over to the house. There's his motor, all tore apart, pieces missing. Chris could have easily taken this man to court. But he felt like God was saying, it's just a motor. And I actually was there that day when we helped hook up his boat trailer to his truck and just take his boat and his falling apart motor back. And he bought a new one. It cost him $15,000 to replace that motor. But I talked with Chris today and said, do I have permission to share? I just want to brag on what Jesus did through you. He said, I was angry for a day. But the more I prayed about it, the more God said, Chris, you don't know what's going on in this guy's life. You don't know what's happening. He could be in jail right now. You don't know what happened to him. And what good is it going to do for you to go and try to get retribution? I'll take care of you. Just put a new motor on the boat. I'll take care of you. And that's what he did. Well, let me just tell you, put yourself in the shoes of the man who cheated Chris. When he finds out that this guy didn't take him to court, didn't sue him, and just replaced the motor and said, it's forgiven. That sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Folks, I'm going to say this as lovingly as I can. When we get angry, it's pride. It's pride. So, yeah, the Bible says be angry and don't sin. But the Bible even more says be slow to anger. And you've got till sundown to hold on to it anyway. So if you're to be slow to it and it can't keep it past sundown and you're to get rid of all anger, what should we do when our anger starts to flare up within us, when we're tempted to respond in that anger? We're to pray. And we're to say, Lord, my wife just made me angry. My husband just made me angry. My friend just made me angry. But I want you to respond through me to them in the way that you would. In the way I would want you to respond toward me if it were me doing this to you. And watch how God gives you the grace to forgive and to seek reconciliation. Will that make me a doormat? I don't think Jesus is a doormat to you. Yet, when they were doing all that stuff to him illegally, and he had the power and the authority to fix it, he humbled himself 
He didn't say a word. And he took it. Aren't you glad he took it? For our sake? Who knows for whose sake God might ask you to take something. The church today is all about their rights. You have no rights. You've been bought with a price. You're a slave of Christ Jesus. He gets to determine whether or not you have rights. Humble yourself before him. By the way, it's going to be fun to see the depth of the law come out as we take a look at it. All of that was from you shall not murder. I love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.